Hello and welcome. I am joined today by Yoram Hazoni, who serves as the chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation, which runs the National Conservatism Conferences. He's the author of The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture, of God and Politics in Esther, The Virtue of Nationalism, and most recently, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Both his works on scripture and his works on political philosophy are important and have been widely read and discussed. Now I've profited from reading both of them myself. And there will be links to all of his books in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure, Alistair. Thank you very much for having me. So unfortunately within contemporary academia and within society more generally, there seems to be a great gulf fixed between scripture and political philosophy. So the close communication and interaction between the scriptural and the political philosophical aspects of your work, I imagine is somewhat less appreciated or explored than they ought to be. And I'd love to hear about the ways in which your interest in both of these areas first originated and how they have been intertwined in the development of your thought. I've been thinking about these things um, ever since graduate school. I, I, I did my doctorate in political theory uh, at Rutgers University uh, in, in the late 80s and early 90s. And I, I had not really studied much political philosophy as an undergraduate. I did other things as an undergraduate. Um, and when I began taking you know, the, the, the initial survey courses, um, in you know, you know of the political philosophy curriculum, which were pretty much the same then as as they are now. They begin with, you know, with with uh, Plato and Aristotle, and then go through Cicero, and then make a you know kind of a a brief pit stop with with Augustine and Aquinas before you know reaching, uh, you know the the what is supposed to be the really interesting stuff with uh, uh, Machiavelli and and uh, the the uh, the Enlightenment thinkers. That story, the astonishing thing about that story for me, when when I first started reading all of these books seriously, was the disconnect between what I knew as uh, as a Jew who knew something about you know the the Bible and the history of biblical uh, reception, you know both among Jews and among Christians, the the gap between that and what was being taught in the curriculum. And I want to emphasize. The, nobody was doing this on purpose. The, this curriculum is is standard. It's a standard curriculum that's taught virtually everywhere, everywhere, and it's taught almost the same without respect to you know whether the people who are teaching it are themselves personally um, liberals or ultra conservatives, religious or not, Jews or Christians. It, it it kind of is a standard curriculum, and one of its most dramatic aspects, at least for me, is the fact that the Bible is absent from it. And um, th this was troubling because, you know, in the first place, because when you when you read these thinkers, I mean, going all the way up, even to Rousseau and Nietzsche, if you know the Bible, then you, you very easily uh, spot where they're, uh, where they're reacting to the Bible, and often in a, in a positive way. Um, and, and, and yet the, the, the courses are taught as entirely as though the Bible is not part of the, the discourse. The students don't learn the Bible, and then they're not told that the, that the history is, is uh, wrapped up in biblical political ideas. So that was a long time ago. Um, and uh, uh, since then, I've uh, learned quite a bit about uh, both about the Bible and the Jewish tradition, but I've, I've also invested together with friends and colleagues over decades in in better learning the uh, the Western tradition and especially the Anglo-American uh, branch, uh, which is in in some respects, you know, you you might say the most biblically aware branch of uh, Western political ideas is um, is the Anglo-American tradition, um, and 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 yet that tradition also is taught almost entirely as though there's no biblical or Christian. Or Jewish influence. So it seems to me that if you're going to be arguing for the importance of the scripture as a political text, there's almost two lines to that argument. You're arguing first that the scriptures um, can, should, and have been read as political texts historically, and also that 
the scriptures, a second part would be that the scriptures have been an integral part of the political philosophical tradition. And if you go back and you read um, Hobbes, or if you read Locke, or if you're reading even further back, you can see the ways that they are interacting with and conversing with the scripture, and they that it forms an integral part of their conversational ecosystem, as it were. It, my impression is that your work is part of a growing movement, one that you've very much spearheaded with various organizations as well, um, to address both of these fronts of the argument. Um, so I'm thinking, for instance, on the side of reading scripture, something like Joshua Berman's work, Created Equal, um, how the Bible broke with ancient political thought, or maybe uh, Halbert Allen Holmes on um, the beginning of politics and their study of the books of Samuel, or something like on the other side, the political tradition, um, Eric Nelson's work, The Hebrew Republic, or um, Leiter's recently, recent work on John Locke. And I would love to hear you say a bit more about the broader movement and the different aspects of the argument that it's making and how you see your own work fitting into this larger movement and what you see that movement representing. Sure. Well, much of the conversation uh, can, um, can be about academics and what's going on in academia. Um, the, there, there are also other aspects to it. What, you know, what, uh, uh, religious Jews have a, a, a parallel and kind of an alternative higher education system, the, the system of the, the, the yeshivas. And that's kind of a separate conversation about what's happening there. Um, but there, there has been a, uh, a flowering of uh, biblical studies in, the, in, in Orthodox Jewish settings that are independent of, or largely independent of what's taking place in, in, in academia. So in part, when you, when you talk about um, people uh, like uh, Josh Berman, who was a, a college classmate of mine, and, uh, and I, I had the honor of funding his, his book, Created Equal, um, when, when, when I was running in an institute that was interested in these things already um, 20 years ago. Um, so Josh Berman, or you, you mentioned um, Moshe Halbertal, and we can, we can name others. What they're doing is they are, they are attempting to translate, and with, with some success, a methods of Bible study that exist in, you know, within Jewish tradition, within, within the rabbinic tradition. And uh, in order to make those, um, uh, the, that rabbinic biblical inheritance, to make it available to academia, uh, quite a bit of work in translation needs to be, needs to be done. Fortunately, by, by the time that, you know, people like um, uh, uh, Josh Berman and, and I were, were coming on the scene in the 1980s and 90s, there had already been the, the, the beginning of this movement that you're describing. Um, uh, uh, Daniel Elazar, uh, Michael Walzer with his book on Exodus and Revolution, uh, Aaron Woldovsky, which is with his uh, mar marvelous political study of, of uh, the, the Joseph and his brother's stories. Th these were texts that already had been published uh, when, when, when I began doing my, my doctorate, which meant that it was very easy for the, uh, the department at Rutgers to decide that it was legitimate for me to write a dissertation on the political thought of the book of Jeremiah. And uh, I, I did this and Woldovsky was on my committee and uh, the, the department, which you know, did not have many scholars who themselves thought that they were knowledgeable in the area, but they, they were very, very encouraging. It was very supportive. And um, so on the one hand, uh, th there was this um, beginning in the 1980s, this, this appearance of the possibility of um, sidestepping the, the strongly anti-biblical uh, intellectual tradition of, of academia, sidestepping it and saying, 
look, but you know, we can be open-minded. I mean, we, you know, we, we we study East Asian political theory, we study Indian political theory. Why can't we study ancient, you know, Hebrew political theory? Um, th that is not. It has not quite panned out as uh, as I had hoped. Um, the 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 universities have many 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 very good people still who when when they hear this discussed they say sure that's that's a great idea sure let's let, let's go ahead and do that but when they say let's go ahead and do that they they don't mean i'm going to change the course of my academic career because as you know as you know academic careers are easily derailed by somebody paying attention to the wrong text at the wrong time of his or her career and you know that's even before you get into uh, you know the question of today much more than yesterday the universities are uh, to say the least skeptical about the Bible as a text that anybody should be studying. Um, so it it ha it hasn't turned out to be uh, a, an influential movement in in the sense that uh, departments all over you know America and Europe have. Um, uh, begun teaching the Bible as a part of the political theory tradition. I would say that the, there's still a good deal of openness in many places, but um, there's been no translation of, let's say, academic presses like like uh, Oxford and 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 Cambridge um, have been enthusiastic about publishing this kind of uh, these kinds of studies, but professors have not been enthusiastic about including them in the curriculum and that that you know that leads to all sorts of you know bigger questions this obviously at this point you know a generation later this is this is not simply a matter of um well people didn't they didn't they weren't aware of these things and you make them aware of it and then they say oh okay let's adjust the curriculum it it, it doesn't work that way, or at least it hasn't worked th that way in this case, probably it just generally doesn't work that way. And um, at this point, I think that uh, that those of us who uh, care deeply about the place of the Bible in uh, in Western intellectual life and also in uh, Western public life, in you know in 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 the the things that 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 people talk about and think about, those of us who care about it, I think at this point, we, we have to we have to draw some some conclusions that, that there there are obstacles to uh, bringing this kind of scholarship into academia, which are actually much much more um, uh, much larger and and much more complex than you know the, what any of us had thought thirty years ago. You mentioned the challenge of getting these sorts of things into the curriculum and. It seems to me that part of the way you frame, for instance, the fact that we can say all these other forms of thought are being treated seriously as pol as political philosophical sources. Why can't we treat scripture that way? Now, in one way, that's a helpful way to get your foot in the door. But it seems that if we're going to be really taking this seriously, the sorts of claims that um, are being made within this growing body of literature, it needs to be part of the canon. Um, it's not just part of the um, more general, diverse world of political thought. This yep. is something that you need to have in the curriculum if you're going to understand the main sources of the Western political tradition. And also, if you're going to understand the biblical text itself, you need to read it these sorts of ways, in addition to and maybe sometimes in contrast to some of the ways that people are most familiar to with reading the Bible as a canonical text. Uh, yes, I, I think all of that is 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 absolutely true, and uh, and then the the question of adding it to the canon um, is uh, there's there's a number of different issues here. I mean the 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 probably the most uh, most glaring issue. Um, is that uh, that the uh, the architects of the of of the present study of political theory, political philosophy, um, 
many of the big names are people who are simply hostile to the idea that the Bible could be included in this way, and they said so explicitly. I, I think it's most obvious when, when you're, you're looking at Leo Strauss. Um, I, I, I have a, a lengthy and detailed paper that I, uh, that I published a number of years ago called The Bible and Leo Strauss. If people are interested in it, they can take a look. Uh, but to, to simplify, Strauss, uh, Strauss's um, teaching and his construction of, of the Western canon is based on the assertion of a dichotomy between, uh, between philosophy and scripture. And um, the, the, the claim is, uh, which is repeated you know, uh, endlessly by at least some of his students, the claim is that uh, that when reading philosophy, one is uh, supposed to be um, pressed to step outside of, you know, a step outside of traditions, to open one's mind, to become skeptical, to test different different ideas, and to pursue truth. Um, you know, we're all familiar familiar with this claim. But Strauss, uh, Strauss, the other part of it is that Strauss asserts repeatedly, uh, in no uncertain terms, that the Bible is not part of any tradition like that. That, uh, that the Bible is uh, about loving obedience, as he says, you're simply supposed to believe without questioning. He adds that in terms of, you know, the theory of knowledge, that the, that the biblical texts uh, assert that, that you can simply be um, handed a truth which you then have to accept on faith. And, you know, this, this entire picture that Strauss presents as, as justification for excluding uh, biblical texts and, and as as uh, as philosophical texts, that look there may there probably have been in history people who thought the way that Strauss says they do about the Bible, but that doesn't mean a that the that the biblical that the the prophets and the scholars who wrote the Bible that they saw the issues that way, and b it doesn't mean that the whole Western tradition saw things this way. You know, so it's it, it's not difficult if you're if you're looking for it to recognize um, Western Western philosophers who considered the Bible to be philosophy. That they you know, the, the 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 statement that the Bible is 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 philosophy is 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 one of the uh, constant refrains that reappears in you know in, in in the history of Christian thought and also in Jewish thought. And we can argue about the extent that it's true, but um, we we do have to I think at this point hit head on the fact that uh, that an extremely influential um, a, 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 a school of thought within academia, which is especially influential among you know among more conservative people, it, it essentially gives a gives a reasons for banishing the Bible as non philosophical. As something as you know, as kind of this other that can't be included that can't be included in the canon, and you know I could name other groups, but the, the story is one way or another it ends up being similar. It seems to me one of the challenges is maybe trying to recover a sense of scripture as having its own authorial voice within narrative sections, and I think this is one of the things I found particularly helpful in your work on um, the philosophy of Hebrew scripture, the challenge of reading the text as something more than just a recounting of historical fact, but giving us some means of um, reflecting philosophically within the text itself. And I think there are plenty of people who use the biblical text as sort of fodder for political or literary or um, some sort of philosophical reflection you can think about the many uses of scripture within um postmodern readings where people are taking it as some sort of inert text that they can do clever things with and confect some sort of philosophical um reading out of but they're not actually attending to any voice that's integral to the text but yet it seems that many um many religious people struggle with the same thing. They're reading the biblical narrative and they don't see anything within it that presents a clear vantage point. Um, they're reading the historical events, believing in their truth, but they're not able to recognize something beyond that. Um, and it seems to me that your work um, depends a lot upon the claims that you make about reading the 
Bible as something that has an authorial voice within its um, narrative and those sections particularly. And so when we're reading the Pentateuch or when we're reading the books of Kings or whatever, we can discern something about what the author wants us to see. Um, can you say a bit more about how we read the Bible that way? What are some of the um, what are some of the skills that we develop can develop sure. by which we sure. can do that? Absolutely. So, uh, just as you said, that one of the things that is uh, that's difficult, you know, uh, wh why don't philosophy departments, for example, recognize just simply recognize the uh, the biblical text as philosophy, and the um, so one of the central issues is that uh, that there's kind of a um, uh, a standard way of doing philosophy which uh, which has descended especially from Aristotle even 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 more than Plato and uh, and it assumes that there's a that there's a a big gap uh, uh, even a a, a, um, a contest uh, or, or or a uh, struggle between philosophy um, which is based on uh, ad advancing explicit propositions about things in the world and then arguing about them um, and uh, the uh, the narrative form or the poetic form um, I mean the 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 central things that we find uh, in in uh, certainly in Hebrew Bible, but I, I, I think also in, in Christian scripture, the central things that we find in Hebrew Bible are um, are uh, narratives, laws, and um, and uh, prophetic speeches, which are uh, which which use metaphor in order to advance all sorts of claims about you know political and theological and moral and and, and other subjects. And all three of these types of material, narrative, metaphorical, and, and legal, appear to, the, uh, to, to people who are uh, too, uh, too deeply in the Aristotelian tradition, that they, they appear as things that should not, be, should not properly be seen as, as, as bearing philosophy. Okay, so, you know, look, the, the, this argument, I think, has already been um, analyzed and, and, and defeated many times because, you know, uh, philosophers have no problem at all in, in, um, in uh, picking up uh, the pre-Socratics who are writing poetry or uh, Plato who's, you know, whose philosophy is filled with stories and, and also even laws uh, or, or um, for that matter, Thucydides and Herodotus who are, you know, despite being historians are treated in uh, are read for their philosophy and for their political teachings and what is it that the author is trying to advance. Uh, all of these things are done routinely in academia. And the, um, the, 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 you know, so the part of the, part of the issue is, uh, is uh, teaching, teaching people to read the Bible uh, in order to hear its teachings, in, in order to read narrative, in order to hear its teachings, to, to read laws in, in order to understand the the uh, the, the the political uh, ideas that are being advanced behind the, the legal system, and especially I think with with prophetic metaphor, where Aristotle um, uh, uh, bequeaths to West, the Western tradition this this claim that that metaphor that the truth value of metaphorical statements is uh, is false that that metaphorical statements are not literally true of anything so if you say the moon is a ghostly galleon you're saying something that maybe poetically have has some you know in, is inspiring but it's it's truth value is it's false it doesn't have any truth to it and um so to to enter the world of uh, biblical thought is to set that Aside, and I think I think people can do it if they want to do it. I don't I don't I don't think we're we're you know just lacking the tools in our civilization. I think people don't want to do it. I think they're 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 uh, they're afraid or there's some other issues that, that prevent them. But you know we were talking before the program, and I, I um, uh, we, we we began discussing as an example, kind of as a test example, the um, the mosaic uh, law of the king in 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 Deuteronomy. Uh, where where uh, the, the entire book of Deuteronomy can can be read and has been often read as uh, as uh, a Hebraic constitution, 
and I, I think was in the Middle Ages actually taken as a, you know, as a, as a model for all sorts of thought about the Constitution. Um, but in, in particular, there's, uh, there's, um, uh, there, there are chapters in Deuteronomy that are focused on uh, the limits on the king's power and, uh, and also uh, questions, constitutional questions like how do you recognize a prophet and what's the role of the priests with regard to the king. And so th there's a number of things here that, that, that echo throughout the history of uh, of Western political theory that you keep, I mean, you come across these passages over and over again um, th throughout the history of Christendom. And um, so, so for example, the, uh, the, the, the king is, Moses says that the king is, uh, is to write a Torah scroll uh, according to the text that he receives from, from the priests. And he's supposed to carry this scroll of the law around with him is all his days, so so that he is uh, uh, symbolically, but hopefully actually, uh, under the yoke of uh, of the le the inherited legal uh, legal tradition, rather than thinking that he's you know that, that he's an absolute ruler. So among the specific prov provisions that uh, that Moses uh, says with respect to the king, these things are very famous, of course, is is that the king is forbidden uh, to to um, uh, to have too many horses, to uh, in the Hebrew it says this seem to, to multiply in in horses, in wives, and in gold, and uh, of course all of these things are directly related to uh, the the weight of the taxation that is imposed on on the nation, and uh, taxation in those days was not just monetary; it's the it, it's the servitude, it's the uh, the corvée, the extraction of labor from from, from the public. And the, the biblical text is extremely concerned with, with this problem of if you have a king, how do you prevent the king from, uh, from becoming a tyrant, which is, it's defined in, in different ways, but the central concern is, uh, is that he's taking uh, the property and the wives and the, the sons, the daughters, the, the, the fathers of, uh, of his people and uh, using them for, for himself in ways that don't benefit them. The the the, uh, the very dramatic you know mosaic expression is um, that that so that his heart will not soar above his brothers his heart won't rise above his brothers now if you just study you know that piece of text so you can come up with all sorts of you know um, uh, uh, guesses as to uh, as to what exactly is 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 the mosaic constitution trying to say here but you don't really need to guess because the subsequent uh, books of the, if we, um, if, if we read the, uh, the first half of the Hebrew Bible, as I, as I do, from Genesis through Kings, that's the first half of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and if you read those nine books as a single, a single narrative, which I, I, is, is the way they present themselves at any rate, then what you see is that this Deuteronomic text is in communication with subsequent texts in the book of Judges and Samuel's and Samuel and Kings, and that this text is actually setting up a standard according to which you can then judge uh, were the were the judges in the book of Judges righteous men according to this standard? Were the kings according to the books of Samuel and Kings were they were they righteous kings? And uh, it, it's more complicated than what I'm saying, but I think that that. What's 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 beautiful about this communication between the law of the king in Deuteronomy and the subsequent unfolding of the story, so that this that the violations of the law of the king end up being central to the uh, to the the the, uh, the division of the uh, the Israelite kingdom in the generation after Solomon. The 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 division is in a significant sense. It's being attributed. To the violation, to the explicit violation of the law of the king, and you know, it's not. There's nothing magical about the way that it's described. It's described, you know, in a political theory sense. Here's what happens if you violate the law of the king, and so uh, Rehavam, the next, uh, the, the 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 next king after uh, after Solomon, one of his sons, Rehavam, is. Um, uh, the the uh, the people come to him and and they say, look, what you, what your father's been doing 
is oppressing us with, uh, with, with the weight of his taxation and his, uh, and his, his forced labor. You're, 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 uh, you're, you're oppressing us, you're, you're suffocating us with the weight of, of, the, of the demands. And this, the text is very, very powerful in, in, in saying that, you know, in the days of things like, you know, how many thousands of horses he had and how many thousands of wives he had. And, and, and you know, then statements like, you know, in the days of Solomon, they, they, the, the, uh, no one in the palace would, would drink from a silver cup because that was regarded as nothing. They had to drink from a gold cup because only gold was valued. These are such powerful um, uh, depictions of the violation of the law of the king. And then Rehavam says, to the people who come to him, he says, um, look, roughly, uh, I'm the king and I do what I want. You know, it's, this is a kind of like a, uh, a, a an absolutist uh, uh, view that says, um, that, that says, you know, I, I'm going to tax you more heavily than my father did. I, I'm going to, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to make your, your burdens and your weight even greater. And this is this is described as the you know the the cause of the the, the rebellion, the civil war that uh, that that ends the United Kingdom for 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 all time, and then is the, the beginning of the end of uh, uh, it takes you know a few centuries, but it's the beginning of the end of Israel Israelite independence. And um, so, if you take this you know as a as a simple as an easy ver an easy example um, of the way in which um, the the prophetic writings use narrative in order to advance claims about political theory, about the way that the political world works. If you, if you want there to be unity in, among your people, then the king has to behave in the following way. And if, you, if you, the king doesn't behave in the following way, then there won't be unity and, and your kingdom is going to fall. And it seems that the way that Kings brings that point across involves all these allusions back to the um, earlier books of the scriptures. So, for instance, increasingly Solomon takes on characteristics of Pharaoh. He has these great store cities, this great forced labor. And then you have people like Jeroboam who play a sort of inverse of um, the story of Israel. They're going down into Egypt for refuge um, from the persecution of this tyrannical king. And then eventually they come back to be thorns in the side. And then you have later on, of course, Jeroboam, who acts like Aaron. He sets up golden calves at um, Dan and Bethel. And then you have his sons, um, Nadab and Abijah, which recall Nadab and Abihu, and all these other sorts of details that kind of twig our memories and help us to think in terms of this larger overarching narrative. And I think this is one of the areas where something of the brilliance of the biblical text as a means of um, political reflection is really brought across. I, th and I think we see this from the very outset of the story. Of the story. Um, it is a story of rule. It's a story of politics. It's a story of empires. It's the story of a nation. And the call of Abraham, for instance, is very much against the backdrop of the the tower and the city of Babel and the failure of that project of Nimrod and his kingdom. And then we move through the story and it's gradually a story of a family, but it's pregnant with all its future political import that this is a nation whose intranational relations are being explored within Genesis. And then we see, for instance, in the blessings of Jacob, their future political instantiation within the land is already present there. And then in the Exodus, God reveals himself against the backdrop of this great empire of Egypt and in conflict with them. And moving through the books that follow, you see Israel gradually being formed against around this new seed of the, the tabernacle. And then going into the books of Samuel, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, you've got this outflowing of all these things that are introduced as themes in the earlier books. And so that intertextuality seems to be a very important part of recognizing um, the scriptures as a political text. Can you speak to some of the ways in which that intertextu intertextuality can maybe help in dealing with some of these later texts like 
Esther, which you've done extensive work on. Well, I, I, I think you, I think your examples are are are, are excellent examples. Um, the the, uh, the 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 story of Jacob, Jacob and his sons, of Joseph and his brothers, uh, is look the, those uh, those those brothers they 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 are foreshadowing the the uh, the, the twelve tribes of Israel, and the. Um, you know, I, I think it, you know it may be that some sometimes religious people are you know they they don't want they're they're uneasy with this kind of thing because it you know it makes it seem like you're saying that 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 the events didn't truly happen. I I you know, I, I, my tradition doesn't doesn't you know the Jewish tradition that 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 I learned doesn't doesn't normally have a problem with this. The rabbis say. Um, uh, is a, is a, which means that the, the, the acts of the fathers are a sign as to what's going to happen in later generations. And it's part of it, it's part of a, a deeper view of history as having uh, re recurring, uh, recurring problems that appear over and over again. But um, the, you, you don't need to take a stand on, um, you know, the, the, the religion departments and the universities, you know, are overwhelmingly focused on questions of historicity, and uh, I think one of the things that's wonderful about um, uh, uh, about a narrative reading, or as you say, an intertextual reading, is that the, the student is not at, at the outset required to take a position on historicity. the the The, the goal is to understand that um, that the that the twelve tribes are they're the building blocks of Israel. Of, of, of Israel as a united nation, and the uh, when, whenever you see the, um, the strengthening and the rise of Israel, it's because of the uh, coming together and, and and unifying of these twelve tribes, uh, which are um, each one has its own characteristics. They're very different from one another. There's no you know today people talk about you know uh, the, the homogeneity of nations it's absurd i mean from the biblical perspective it's just the opposite that 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 uh, that the, the, each of these tribes has its its own unique character and the the hardship is to is to get the things to work together and um and then throughout the entire narrative the the same problems that are given taught to us in embryo in, in the story of uh, Joseph and his brothers, or e even earlier in, in, you know, in the struggle between uh, 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 Jacob and Esav, or, or uh, um, uh, with, uh, b between Yitzhak and uh, Ishmael, um, that these stories of brothers, the stories of brothers who can't live together, the stories of brothers who betray one another, who try to kill one another, who trade one another in for money, who like all of these these evils reflect are they they reflect things that individual human brothers and sisters can do to one another, of course. But the the analogy is between the relationship within the family and the relationship within the nation, and you know already in the. Um, in 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 uh, uh, Moses leading the people in the desert, we already see, um, you know, before they even enter Israel, the uh, the the um, uh, the demands of uh, of of the tribes that want to live on the other side of the Jordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan. So th uh, those those tribes come to Moses and say, you know, we're we're cattle ranchers. This is perfect land for, for cattle ranching. Moses says, "Oh, come on! We, we haven't even entered the land, and you're already um, giving us a formula for for breaking up the army and 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 disuniting us." And they say, "No, no, 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 no. We um, we will if you give us this land on the other side of the Jordan, then uh, then then we'll agree to be on the front lines to to be the the uh, the, the scouts running ahead in the most dangerous." position in in the battle to conquer conquer the land and so it, you know at, at the beginning it looks like there's a there's a, a simple solution and then later it turns out over and over again that that um, uh, that the tribes on the other side of the Jordan uh, either that they don't feel like that the, they're being treated justly by the main body of the Israelites or that the main body of the Israelites don't really consider them to be you know they're, they're kind of strange they're not really legitimate 
if you trace just this one question through the you know through the book of judges and into the book of samuel you you'll see that the, that this issue of um, how do we keep those tribes that feel themselves alienated what can we do in order to 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 bring them in this is this is one of the, it's it's one of the central political issues that's troubling the uh the uh, the, the prophetic narrators they they are um, trying to understand how polities rise and how they fall, what keeps them united and what destroys their internal uni unity so that they can't fight anymore. And uh, wow, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to drag us into current politics, but it just seems like, like people today so much need a politics that is based on a realistic understanding that nations are not internally homogenous, that the, uh, of, uh, the, the, the trouble of internal disunity among tribes that come to hate one another and betray one another, and what can and should be done in order to uh, avoid that. I mean, th this, this is a, you know, a, a, a dead center, constant issue in political, biblical political thought that we very much need today and is, is not, not so easy to find when you look at you know, uh, Greek or Roman sources. It seems you've discussed the different characteristics of different tribes um, and the ways that they have a certain sort of char charism. For instance, Levi has a particular zeal or Judah has an ability to um, lead his brothers or um, we can think of Joseph's tribes, Ephraim particularly, as this, the shrewdness of man political management. And you can see that coming out, of course, in characters like Mordecai or Daniel, who are presented against that mold. And it seems to me that Israel's unity, um, as it's presented between the tribes, is always one that has certain fault lines it's going to fracture on between north and south or between um, the Transjordanian tribes and the tribes within the promised land proper. And then there are key tribes that kind of keep the nation together in various ways. Which way Benjamin goes is a really big question. Is Judah going to stand for Benjamin? Um, the way in which Judah leads his brothers or the question of the Levites who are scattered and in their scattering bring the nation together. Um, it seems that or Manasseh, who straddles the two sides of the, the Jordan. There are all these very distinct ways in which the unity and distinction of the tribes is maintained by different tribes in different ways, and also by certain practices. So there are certain things that encourage diversity and difference between the tribes, and there are certain areas where that is not tolerated. There needs to be one single site of worship, for instance, and unified worship. Um, could you say something more about the different forms of um, unity for the nation in its intranational relations? I, th I think you've said it very well. There's, there's a, uh, there are all the fault lines that you described, and and the, and there are additional ones. Um, an important one that would, uh, you know, catch, catch the eye, I think, of uh, of readers today is the is the tension between. Um, between, on, on the one hand, Judah, Joseph, and Benjamin, the, uh, the, the largest and strongest tribes together, they make kind of like a, a block that, uh, of, of the, uh, let's say they're, they're kind of the leading tribes, as opposed to, uh, which you can already see reflected, obviously, in, in the stories in Genesis, but in, in, the, in, in political reality, as it's described, uh, later in 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 the narrative, um, the uh, the the smaller tribes are um, are also a class. There's a there's a, a class of of tribes that are dependent on these larger tribes, and so it, it it's not only a matter of um, how to bring uh, a uh, a uh, a tribe like Joseph that is. Um, tends towards the ways of worldly power. Jo Joseph in Egypt is kind of a model for the, for the tribe of Joseph, for the, for the descendants of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is somebody who is, um, he's, uh, you know, he, he's, he's dreaming about ruling, ruling the world and the heaven, ruling all the other tribes, and then ruling the, you know, the cosmos. As, as, as a boy, he's dreaming these dreams. And uh, that that makes his brothers hate him because they say, "Look, he's an Egyptian. He he is this 
you know, this non-Jewish, non-Hebraic thing. He's not, he's not one of us. He doesn't want to, you know, be a shepherd up on the hill, hilltops, uh, spurning uh, vast power and, and wealth in order to get close to God. He, he, he wants to go down there and to, to turn us into uh, an, ag an agrarian, an agricultural society, which involves, you know, uh, a vast irrigation systems and, 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 and uh, ultimately a, a very, very heavy burden of the states to, uh, to, uh, to, to build these irrigation systems and this farming economy and then to, uh, to set up huge armies in order to defend that kind of uh, economy from, from marauding from the outside. The, the, the brothers reasonably see him as somebody who is saying, um, look, there's always famine where we are. We're always starving. Why do we have to depend on Egypt? Let's use the tools of Egypt in order to grow mighty, and then we won't be hungry anymore. Now, that's, that's an argument that, you know, of course, in a certain sense, the, you know, the, the Bible tilts away from, away from Joseph and to his brothers, but, um, but it's a mistake. Uh, and I, I've seen this in, you know, in some contemporary readers. It's a mistake to think that because Joseph is on the side of uh, cities and wealth and power and uh, and and uh, and even empire, the mistake to think that he's being read out of the Jewish people. This is not what this is not the way it goes. Do you want to see what, what when somebody's read out of the Jewish people? It's the tribe of Shimon that is considered to be so barbaric. He's the he's like the the um, the. Uh, um, not literally the twin brother of Levi, but but the two of them are are partners from the very beginning. That you know, from the the the, the slaughter of the city of uh, uh, of, of Shem, Levi and and Shimon are are, are partners in their extremely uh, violent uh, and and aggressive way of dealing with uh, with problems. But as you said, eventually Levi becomes uh, is. Uh, uh, is not given a piece of land. He's not given political power because he's too aggressive. He's turned into the priesthood, whereas Shimon is considered to be unsalvageable. Levi is is seen to be you know like a zealot for truth and for God. So you can so he can make good priests, but Shimon is a tribe that really is read out of the story. That he and and it, and it's explained. He doesn't. He, he, he's, he's, his people are being punished for 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 their traits and their behavior. They're too violent. And um, and so Joseph is not like Shimon. Joseph's sons are not read out of the story, and Joseph is not read out of the story. And so, in in order to to um, understand what's being taught here, we have to see both what's the proper relationship between a Judah-like king and the extremely powerful Joseph-like uh, political machinators, um, uh, power mongers. Uh, economists who, who, you know, the, the king needs in some way to ally himself with those or the, or the kingdom will fail. But somehow he has to be in control and not let them be in control. And then that alliance between Judah and Joseph, in turn, when it's working, it then has to uh, be, uh, be able to bring the, uh, the lesser tribes um, along, even though they're not the richest and they're, they're not the most powerful. If Judah and Joseph are not going to care about, let's say, the tribe of Dan, which is uh, one of the tribes that's singled out as being persecuted and destroyed during the book of, uh, of Judges, or um, the men of, uh, uh, of Gilad on the far side of the Jordan, who, who, who appear over and over again as being exposed to, to the, the mo most horrible persecution. And the question is, what are, what are Joseph and Judah, what are those tribes going to do for those smaller tribes that can't, can't defend themselves to bring, 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 bring them in? So th this is, you know, it sounds like a, you know, like something that's too schematic and, and too, too theoretical, but when you read the stories, generation after generation of, of, of seeing how it develops, how the story develops, how the, the different tribes change in order to accommodate and resolve these problems and, and how they fail, how the different kings fail to resolve them. You, as soon as you ask that question and you start reading the story in this way, you realize, I mean, you're, you're in the hands of um, extremely perceptive, uh, first of all, storytellers, but also theorists 
who are, are, are telling you about the different types, the different, the, the different political types. They have, they have a typology, different political types that appear, recur through history and how each of them has, to, has special unique things that they have to contribute. If you can't find a way to bring them in, you will not be able to maintain the polity. And it seems that there's an, an artistry and a subtlety that that allows that within a typical rhetorical mode of philosophy just is not operative. Um, and so if you're reading through the story, you see all these Joseph characters, for instance, portrayed with variations, with a sort of musical development of a theme. Right. Um, and as a result, there are ways that you can see the same traits functioning positively or negatively. I mean, I think of this in David Dorbey's argument, at the, the final chapter of the Book of Esther, um, that seems anticlimactic. It's about tax policy. But you have the shrewdness of Mordecai, who, in helping to design a good tax policy, saves the kingdom from a sort of predatory um, um, sort of ruler, where you're having a, a, an emperor who's just going to destroy peoples in order to fill the coffers. If you have a good tax policy, you're saved from that sort of thing. Or if you think about the character of Daniel and the wisdom that he employs both to save his own people and be faithful in a situation where would be persecuted, but also to help to guide the nation and the, the empire. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts moving in that direction. The story of Israel does not just stay within its own borders. If we go into the prophets, there are addresses to all these other nations roundabout. In something like Daniel or Esther, we have Jews within pagan courts and yeah. their faithfulness in those situations, but also the way in which they're guiding the nations. In the very beginning of Deuteronomy, you have Israel presented as an example of wisdom to the nations. And I think we see this in many parts of the scripture, particularly when we read the story of Abraham's calling against the backdrop of the story of Babel, this is a problem. This is a worldwide problem to which there's a very specific nation that's being um, brought as the solution that is going to then affect the whole world. Could you speak a bit more to the way in which the story of Israel can provide lessons for the politics of other nations? Well, uh, to, to begin with, you're absolutely right that the, uh, the, the, uh, the book of Genesis and, and what follows is, is unequivocal and, and explicit in saying that, uh, that God, on the one hand, is going to make Abraham a great nation. I mean, that, that's the, the, the opening promise is leave your, you know, leave your land, go to the land that I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. And the flip side of the same verses is that you will become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so, so there, there is a, um, uh, when you read the story, uh, when, when you read the Hebrew Bible from Genesis straight to the end, you're right that the, 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 first, the first half is about the rise and fall of, of the Israelite kingdom. And then the second half has all of this but different kinds of um, uh, commenting on and responding to that narrative in, in ways that then can be also, uh, uh, also understood as teaching, uh, you know, directly teaching uh, uh, the, the context of other nations. Um, but, but, but it's there from the beginning, okay? The, the, what's the very beginning? The very beginning is the conflict between, uh, between uh, Cain and Abel which is the conflict, which as the story goes, we'll see that the, the, the conflict between Cain, the farmer, the, the agriculturalist, um, and Abel, the shepherd, those are the, 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 the broadest archetypes, the ones that set up the, 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 the deepest and most original a problem, political problem that, that, that the Bible is trying to deal with, which is that the, the shepherds are poor people on the hilltops, but they're free. They're free to pursue their God. It's very difficult to 
uh, for for the for the, the large armies in, in in the giant river valleys in the Nile and Euphrates to to, to conquer these uh, hill dwelling shepherds. There are armies just you know their chariots don't go up there, and the the hatred between farmers and shepherds, which is murderous from the beginning, um, th that that is th that's the the setup, as you said, for you know for the for the Babel story, where you know we get the uh, kind of the, the the ultimate nightmare of you know when, when the farmers are left to their own devices, what do they do? Well, they they become so impressed with their own power that you know they they build these vast cities and uh, and then they think they're God and they you know they they decide that they're going up to they're they're going to go up to heaven and take over heaven because they believe they're God, and so there's this um, uh, disgust. From the beginning, this this disgust and mutual hatred between the farmers and the shepherds, um, which 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 then continues to to appear in the story. And this is you know th this is not about Jews. This is a you know as as academics like to say this is a human universal. Is this tension? You know I I, I found in uh, John Fortescue, um, the, the the great common lawyer in his in praise of the books uh, in praise of the laws of England, where he's uh, there's a, a wonderful paragraph where he's describing that the English, uh, because they are, because their, their their nation is ultimately founded on shepherding and not on farming. You know, I, I don't even know to, you know to what extent this is true, but but the the inheritance of this understanding that you know not only Abel but uh, but that uh, uh, Abraham is a shepherd and Jacob is a shepherd. Uh, who dreams of the ladder up to heaven? And Moses, in order to be able to lead Israel, he has to go out and become a shepherd. He can't just, you know, grow up in, you know, in 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 in, in the Egyptian palace. He has to go spend forty years as a shepherd before he's ready to 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 come and save save the Israelites. And then, you know, it continues. David is a shepherd, whereas whereas Saul is a farmer, and and so on. Um, this is a human universal, and it. Uh, it's a universal problem that the Torah is dealing with, that the Bible is dealing with, and even though the uh, the Jews are singled out by God as being a special people, right? That you know that that's that's clearly there. That that God sees the Tower of Babel, He despairs of um, trying to be able to address humanity directly as a whole, and He says, "All right, so I'm going to set set up a special people, and they're going to be." They're going to embody the the shepherd ethic. They're going to in, in, embody the the resistance against having power take over everything, and and then make you think that you're a god and turn you into a, a, a tyrannical world oppressor. Israel is supposed to 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 embody the shepherd uh, spirit, you know. But on the other hand, Israel is of this earth, and uh, as soon as the you know as as soon as the, there's there's twelve brothers. Then, uh, then Joseph begins to say, "All right, fine. Um, so we're shepherds. But does that mean we have to be poor? Does that mean we have to lose all our wars? Does that mean we have to starve to death? Does that mean we have to depend on the Egyptians for our food?" And 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 you st start to see how this this universal conflict, it you know it it can't stay you know between uh, you know Israel and the nations. It's internal to every nation. It's internal to Israel as a you know, as an archetype, and then the question is, what can we do to to make sure that the that uh, that that the balance between uh, the uh, the freedom loving, God loving um, uh, people who are skeptical of uh, of worldly power and the power loving, um, you know, the 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 financiers and the conquerors of the nation, how can we make sure that uh, that in a nation that balance is uh, is properly maintained, and, and and again, it's it's presented as it, it, as the key to survival. You can't maintain a nation if you don't do that. I think reading through the biblical narrative, we just see in those different characters, which are not simply presented as good or bad, but with subtleties and strengths and weaknesses and tendencies, we have resources to address those sorts of problems within our polities that are often lacking within single political visions that would apply in every single context in the same way. It's almost like a, a musical task of orchestrating these different types alongside each other, rather than just giving one type dominance over everyone else. 
And I find just reading the biblical narrative, you see so much of this coming up at different points, often just developing those fundamental themes. And in conclusion, um, would you be able to say, just give some thoughts about how we can read the Bible in this political way, and yet still hear it as a story about God? It seems that the Bible doesn't have the problem reconciling these two things, but many modern readers might. Yeah, I, you know, it's, um, uh, I, I began wondering about this question uh, because of the book of Esther, as, as you mentioned, at, at a certain point, I, 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 I wrote a, a short book about the book of Esther in order to understand its, I, I wanted to understand its relationship to God because God doesn't appear in the book of Esther. And, uh, and you know, in some ways, it's easier for modern readers to begin reading the Bible by reading Esther because, uh, because in, in Esther, you see a, uh, a world that looks like our world looks to, to most people today, uh, a, a world of politics and intrigue and persecutions and, and, and uh, um, a, a world that's political in which God's name does not appear. Um, and yet, and, 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 and because that speaks so well to people today, uh, it's, it's remarkable when, when, when you uh, study the Esther text and you start realizing how many places in the text are directly quoting other passages earlier in scripture uh, where, where uh, in, in which God is present. And uh, so, so that, you know, this is a very, it's a, it's a fascinating question, an interesting story, but to make it very, very simple, um, the, the, the book of Esther uh, proposes that when, that when Esther um, decides that she's willing to uh, risk her life to save her people, at, at the moment that she she does that, she you know puts on the robe. The Hebrew is very strange there. It says that she loved Shamalchut, that that she that she uh, uh, wore the that she put on the kingdom, that she dressed herself in kingship. And uh, the, uh, there's a number of other passages that are parallel to this, but the the idea of dressing in kingship is not referring to the kingship of you know Ahasuerus of Xerxes. It's referring to uh, to each of us in our worldly role as uh, as acting as God's uh, servants or as his uh, viceroys or his his representatives to to advance his will when when we act with uh, with justice in the political world so th that's that's Esther which actually in some ways even argues with with some of the more th uh, theologically um, uh, explicit books like Daniel um, but the, both Daniel and Esther are actually they're 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 commenting on uh, on the earlier Joseph story, which is uh, where where the question is, do you have to in order to gain power in the world, do you have to serve Pharaoh? In other words, do you have to become an instrument of idolatrous power in order to gain power in the world? And uh, these 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 later biblical books, Nehemiah is also a crucial book commenting on this. They're taking sides on the question of how right and how wrong was Joseph, or or can we be like Joseph, uh, but uh, but rein it in for the sake of good? And the Book of Esther claims that Joseph was right; that you can in fact uh, maintain a a godly politics while being immersed in in a world of complete evil you know where we're all around you the, the, there's terrible things happening it's not just you know a matter of um you know keeping keeping kosher like daniel does you know uh, in daniel's a very optimistic book in this way that that you know all you need to do is uh, keep the dietary laws and maintain your personal purity and and you know when you know when 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 the the uh uh, the Babylonians or the Persians decide to kill you, then you, you will, uh, God will save you. He'll just come in and he'll save you and there'll be a miracle and you're fine. So I'm sure that this does happen sometimes, but many times it doesn't happen. And so the, um, what's, what's fascinating is once you've seen that both Daniel and Esther are included in scripture, that, that the rabbis include both of these books as, as counterpoints, as, as, 
uh, opposite interpretations of reality. Once you see that, then then it's not so hard to go back and recognize that this you know this marvelously subtle text is already making raising already raising these raising these questions. I mean, just a, here's an obvious example. Um, so Moses is um, uh, uh, raised in the palace of, of Pharaoh, and he has an innate sense of justice. You know, he, he, uh, the first thing we learn about him once he's an adult is he goes out to see, you know, to see what's happening with his brothers, and he, he, he comes across an Egyptian who's, who's beating, beating a Hebrew slave, and he, and he kills him and buries him in the sand. Uh, and then the next scene, already things get much more complicated. You think, okay, that's simple. Um, the Egyptians are tyrants. You know, the, the Hebrews are the oppressed. This is a Marxist text. You should, you should just destroy the oppressors. But then the next scene, the next verse, what happens is after that is he sees a, a, two Jews beating each other. And he goes and he tries to separate them. And, you, you know, with this, like, uh, you know, there's the, the justice and righteousness. What's wrong with you? Stop fighting with one another. Don't you see that you're the oppressed kind of thing? And, and, and one of them, and, and they say to him, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us like you, you killed the Egyptian? And wow, I mean, when you get to this moment, I mean, you, you, you should feel like, like you've been struck in the face the way that, that Moses must have felt. It's not enough to, you know, to, to see the good and think that you know how to, you know, you know, right and wrong in order to get things to happen politically. So Moses flees and, and for 40 years, he's, he's out there, you know, with, with the sheep. And not until he has had the experience, uh, you can even say that, you know, the quasi-political experience of being responsible for, you know, vast numbers of, of, of these animals. And not until he's done that, does he um, then have the uh, the uh, uh, the insight to see that there's you know that there's something burning on 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 the on the mountain? The rabbis say that that bush was burning there for you know for for a thousand years before Moses <laughs> Moses noticed it. When no, Moses goes up there and God starts telling him you're going to save the Israelites, Moses says no, you don't know who I am. I can't speak. I don't have these abilities. I mean, he's he, he, he's he's making arguments, all of which are reasonable. He said he, he he says, you know, who am I to go to Pharaoh? But the the story doesn't allow us a simple non theology non theological political answer. There's a political answer. The political answer is the Hebrews do not get freed from slavery until there arises a man from the palace. Um, you know, kind of like like a, a Joseph type figure in a certain sense, until somebody arises who knows enough about the palace to be able to do politics, God does not save the Israelites, right? I mean, he he, he could have interfered, you know, 200 years earlier when, when their blood was flowing like water, but, but God didn't interfere. God doesn't, doesn't help the Israelites until Moses arises. And, and that, that is a very pointed, message it's it, it which appears repeatedly in these biblical narratives that god god needs us to take the initiative and we need god to give us strength to give us direction to give us a, an understanding of, of of justice and also to help us with the final push because no human hand is actually strong enough to be able to achieve anything in politics if god isn't in the end going to help you that's not a simple message, but but it's it's a true message. It, it's a crucial message that that all of us all of us still need today, and unfortunately we can't get it if you know if we set aside scripture and and say well you know that that that's not important because you know we have philosophy or we have political theory or we have natural law or what you know whatever reasons people have, we need scripture. We we, we don't have any choice. We have to have it. And um, you know, God bless you for your, your efforts to try to to bring it to, to to people who are in need of it. I I know that it's not always a, an easy job, but it's it's the right thing to do. It's God's will. Yoram Hazoni, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure.